On Friday, June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States on a narrow 5-4 to four decision ruled in favor of legalizing gay marriage. I'm sure now this is not new to any of you. You've heard this before. The news coverage has been nonstop. The Supreme Court is our nation's highest court, making the ruling final. And this decision makes the United States the 21st nation to approve of and legalize same-sex marriage. But this decision obviously did not come without some controversy and dissent. The 5-4 split decision largely reflects the split in our nation when it comes to support for gay marriage. The function of the Supreme Court is to keep the president, the Congress, and the states in check when it comes to violating the highest law of our land, which is the Constitution. And many would say, though, that this was not done in this case. Some would say that it was five unelected judges camouflaging their moral will and legal wording in order to circumvent the Constitution and the people behind it to achieve a desired goal. Some would say the Constitution doesn't even mention marriage, so this decision should have been left to the states to reflect the will of the people. But it wasn't, and as such, the Supreme Court overreached its boundaries and and went so far as to redefine marriage. Chief Justice Scalia, in his dissenting opinion, stated that, quote, a system of government that makes the people subordinate to a committee of nine unelected lawyers does not deserve to be called a democracy, end quote. The Supreme Court doesn't represent the people. The Congress represents the people with elected congressmen. It's their job to make laws that represent the will of the people or reflect the will of the people. The Supreme Court is then called to evaluate those laws against the Constitution, but it doesn't seem like that was done in this case. But for now, though, despite dissenting opinions, the case has been settled. So now what? You can spend a lot of time debating what this means for our democracy, We're not going to do that. We're going to leave that for the political arena. That's not our concern here. But for us, for the church, this decision has bred much confusion and and fear among Christians the past two weeks. Many Christians have since been wondering what this will mean for their religious liberties, what will come next. And thankfully, the true church has been by no means confused when it comes to what's right or wrong in this issue. Marriage did not change despite what the Supreme Court said. Marriage is a sacred institution created by God himself that no human court has the authority to redefine, despite what people want to say. Also, morality did not change. Homosexuality is still a sin, regardless of whether they get married or not. The Bible is crystal clear on that. So the issue here is not whether this ruling was right or wrong for us, for the church, for those who follow God. It's it's obvious this was sadly wrong. But the real question for those in the church is, is how do we make sense of this now? What does this mean for the church? How should God's people respond to this ruling, to this shift in our society in general? And over the past two weeks since this ruling, I've observed some questions and concerns arise from this little flock and the flock at large. And so being your shepherd, since it's such a significant issue, I felt it my duty to share some thoughts and reflections to help you think through this issue and and what does come next in a biblical manner. How should you respond? And that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, trust you guys understand, I'm not a current events preacher. We preach the word of God here verse by verse, one verse at a time. So I don't don't rip sermons from the headlines, not something we uh, normally do. And I do promise we will resume the Gospel of Mark next Sunday, which we were going to do today, but next Sunday, for real. But two weeks ago, it was such a dark Friday in our country that it really does beg for some commentary, some thinking, some reflection. I want to help you think through this issue and discern, well, what, what should you do? How should you respond? It's, it's been settled according to our courts. Our, our concern, though, is to do what is right to honor God, even in the face of persecution. And I believe the church needs encouragement to do that in this hour. So with the rest of our time this morning, I'm going to give you six biblical reflections and six biblical responses to the legalization of gay marriage in our country. Six biblical reflections and six biblical responses to this current case. Just a hope that these will help guide you, your thoughts, your responses in the coming months, the coming years. There has been a shift in our country. It's not terribly surprising, but nonetheless, I think the church needs to be ready to respond and and know how to respond in, in a time like this. 
Now, I'm not turning this into a series. We're just doing this today only, so we're going to be quick. We've got rapid fire. We've got to go through some, move some territory. But hopefully these give you some food for thought to get you started on how to think through and how to respond to this issue. So to begin, let's start with this, six biblical reflections on the legalization of gay marriage. Number one, this decision has not redefined marriage. This decision has not redefined marriage. I said it before, and I'll say it briefly again, that no human court has the authority to redefine marriage. Granted, in the court of public opinion, marriage has changed, but not in God's court. According to God, marriage is it's a sacred institution that he himself created, defined as one man and one woman coming together. That's God's definition, and you can't just change that, despite what people want to say. Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, humans have excelled in the business of casting aside God's word and God's will from the beginning. But that doesn't change God's word and God's will. Whether you obey it or not, that's one thing, but it stands as it is. True marriage has not and cannot be redefined, and as such, we can't acknowledge the redefinition our society wants to make. Rather, Christians must continually contend for marriage between man and woman as God's gift to humanity. Biblical marriage is the building block for society itself, such that when marriages and the family decline, society suffers. And we've already been vindicated in that regard. That's already happened. Our society has already accepted adultery as normal, divorce for any reason as normal, abortion as normal, now homosexuality as normal. And all of this has wreaked havoc on the family. And as a result, we're now plagued with countless social ills. As marriage and the family continue to disintegrate over time, so will our society. It will only get more wicked and more broken by the sin which it celebrates. For us, though, we must continue to uphold marriage as God defined it. We have to fight for the family, and we can't accept the redefinition of marriage that some in our society would have. True, our society wants to redefine what's right and wrong, what's normal, but we have to obey God rather than men. We can't accept such a redefinition. So for God, for us, this decision has not redefined marriage. Number two, second reflection, this decision is not surprising. At the same time, this decision, it's really not surprising. I wasn't shocked. You might have been, but I wasn't shocked by this. And first off, on a political level, the decision to legalize same-sex marriage was not surprising. Even if it never came through the Supreme Court, it would have eventually come through the states. Before this decision, it was already legal in 38 states. The remaining 12 would have, over time, eventually probably capitulated. So politically, it's not that surprising. But the acceptance of homosexuality and gay marriage is not surprising on another level. We already live in a wicked society where most people either don't believe in God or they certainly aren't living for God, they're living for self. Like we said, we already have a society that accepts adultery, divorce for any reason, abortion, even celebrates these sins and many others. So why are you surprised that they just take the next step and now celebrate homosexuality, transgenderism? It's really not surprising that we live in a society that has long ago abandoned trying to heed God's will and God's word. So, I mean, are you really shocked that they're just doing what what they do? No, it's not surprising. Realize, though, sin is a destructive, decaying force. And we're all sinners. We all have depravity within us. The problem is in our our own hearts, all of us. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, not even one. So if we're all fallen sinners, what keeps our sin in check and our society from just totally going off the deep end? Well, for believers, there's the new birth. Through salvation by faith in Christ, God regenerates us. He makes us new such that even though we, we still sin, we have a new heart, we have new desires, we have a new ability to wage war against sin. What about for unbelievers, though? Do do they have anything keeping their sin in check? The answer actually is yes. God has given all people internally a conscience, something telling them from inside what is right, what is wrong, to keep them from plunging off the deep end into sin. And externally, God has given all people two institutions, the institution of family and government, to promote what is right 
and to fight against what is wrong. But what happens when you have a society where people's consciences are seared, the family is disintegrated, and the government itself is supporting wickedness? Well, you're going to see depravity run wild. And that's pretty much where we are. A nation is only as good as its citizens. So in a society where the majority of its people are not transformed by the gospel, but still enslaved to sin, it's only a matter of time before it sinks further and further into wickedness. Legalization of gay marriage is not the starting point for our country. We've been sliding down that slippery slope for over 100 years now, maybe more. And uh, we've already come a long way, and at this point it's really only going to get worse. That too, though, is not surprising. That's just how sin works. Take, for example, polygamy. Before gay marriage was legalized, one of the main arguments used by opponents of gay marriage was that if you open that door and redefine marriage, you are going to allow a host of other deviancies when it comes to marriage, like polygamy, incest, and more. And gay marriage supporters said, well, that's never going to happen. That's bogus. That, that, that can't be. And yet here we are. With the recent ruling, one dissenting justice stated that the same arguments used in support of gay marriage would be used in support of polygamy and there'd be no stopping it. America is now bound to its own corrupt logic. If all that matters is love, if the slogan is love wins, if the real argument is hey, you should be free to love and marry whoever you want to love and marry, if that's a logic, then how can you, under the same logic, deny three or more consenting adults who want to marry They just want to love who they want to love and marry who they want to marry. What what about their civil rights, if this is a civil rights case? You you can't deny them. Of course, that too is wrong. But look, when you redefine marriage, it really loses its meaning. It loses all meaning. It becomes a meaningless institution. You mark my words, you will soon see polygamy accepted. You'll see men marrying multiple wives, women marrying multiple men. You'll see group marriages. You think it can't be? It's already starting. Literally, immediately after this gay marriage ruling, a Montana family came out and applied for a three-person marriage license. They want the same status and the same rights as gay people now, and they're using the exact same arguments that have just been used and won. If they're denied, they'll sue. It's only a matter of time before it works its way up the courts, back to the Supreme Court, and they're bound by their own logic now. It's just a matter of time. But, you know, it's also not surprising. This is how sin works. We're just witnessing the results of sinners in their hearts when they don't serve God. It's it's within all of us, depravity, and so it comes out. What do you expect? Next will be polygamy. Further down the road, you can see incest. Why not? Love wins. Could you even see pedophilia? I mean, who are you to deny the love of a six-year-old man and a 15-year-old boy if they're both willing, consensual, they love each other? You think that's crazy, that's just a scare tactic and scare argument. But would you be surprised to know that it's actually happened before in other civilizations in the same manner? Consider number three, reflection number three. This decision is mostly nothing new. This decision is mostly nothing new. I think it's helpful if you gain some historical perspective on this homosexual issue. The sin of homosexuality, it's not new by any stretch of the imagination. Pretty much right after the fall, mankind has, has plunged into sexual morality right away, and this one included. You recall, for example, in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah, known for their homosexuality. And the men of that city were so lost and depraved that they wanted to come together and rape Lot's two male visitors who were angels in disguise. And even after being blinded, they still groped for the door. They're so consumed by their homosexual lust. Homosexuality was also prevalent in ancient Greece. The Greeks conceived of the highest love, not that between a man and a woman, but of Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. The highest love was between two men. That led to homosexuality, fully accepted in ancient Greece. And that led to pederasty, which is what we call pedophilia accepted in ancient Greece, the relationship between an adult male and a young boy or teenager. That was accepted by the Greeks. It was, it was normal. Many of these practices were then adopted by the Romans, which is why we see them condemned in the New Testament, by the way. But the Romans, they also accepted homosexuality and pedophilia. 
Now, it wasn't widespread. Everybody accepted it, and probably we'll never get to that point in our country. But in Rome, it certainly was accepted by the elites and the rulers. The Caesars, the emperors, were the, the worst offenders committing, can't even repeat the acts they performed with young boys, truly depraved minds. But the point I'm making is, if you think our society is bad, you're right. But it's actually still not as bad as some other ancient civilizations. At least not yet. Ours is not the first society to accept homosexuality or transgenderism. But history has proven that you open those doors to those sexual sins. Those doors aren't easily closed. And they do lead to more and more depraved sexual sins. So 10 years from now, 20, 50, 100, who's to say what will this country be like, what will be allowed. Those doors are not easily closed. What we see in our society concerning homosexuality, it's, it's mostly nothing new. Mostly nothing new. However, I will say this, it is new in one regard. I will say that for the first time ever, we are witnessing a worldwide normalization of homosexuality. That is new. We haven't seen that before. The world is now uniting in evil, and that's not a good sign. It is only a matter of time before the world unites against Christians, those who stand for the truth, even in our own nation. So you must also be aware, number four, fourth reflection, this decision may bring persecution. But that also is nothing new. This decision may bring persecution. But that also is nothing new. America was founded on the principles of freedom and liberty, including religious liberty, the freedom to practice your religion without fear of persecution by the state. But now the state and the church are so at odds with one another that that liberty is in question. Scripture is clear. Our convictions are clear. We must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 This means we cannot celebrate same-sex marriage. We certainly cannot perform same-sex marriage. Yet the nature of liberalism in America is such that it's not enough for homosexuals to be allowed to marry. You must approve of it. You must celebrate them. You must embrace it. Otherwise, they'll come after you. And that's why we have already seen you know, bakers and caterers and restaurants being prosecuted for not wanting to participate in a gay wedding ceremony. At the end of the day, those living in sin don't like their consciences, whatever's left, pricked by their sin, by the pesky, usually Christians who are standing for the truth. So how long till they come after the churches, especially those who, in love, still speak the truth? Who knows? For a hundred years, Christians have been labeled as anti-intellectual for not buying into the evolutionary worldview. And now we will probably be the ones labeled as immoral and intolerant for not buying in and embracing the homosexual agenda. But what can we do? We must obey God rather than men. And you must remember, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 3.19, Jesus said, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. John 15, verses 19 through 20. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. The slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Remember, Jesus was persecuted by the unrighteous, as were the apostles as were members of the early church, and pretty much all the faithful throughout the ages up until recently. In America, we've enjoyed an unparalleled liberty and freedom to follow Christ that has really not been known largely in, in, in church history. But we're not entitled to that. We are nowhere in Scripture entitled to freedom to practice our religion. Darker days may indeed be upon us, but you also need to realize that's not new. The church started in days actually much darker than, than this. And the church even flourished because the light shines brightest when it's darkest out. We've actually been promised persecution. The darkness will always hate the light. 
So expect it. Understand it. Comes with the territory. Shouldn't cause you to fear. We have nothing to fear because our God is greater. Rather, the ones who really should fear are those living in the darkness. Because number five, the fifth reflection, this decision is a sign of judgment on our own nation. This decision is a sign of judgment on our own nation. If you like, you can follow along in Romans chapter 1. You can open your Bible there. I'm quoting most of these verses, but if you like, Romans chapter 1 for this next one. It's a significant passage that hits a nail on the head when it comes to our current situation. The judgment described in this passage has been played out in so many civilizations. And it seems like we're next up to bat. In Romans 1.18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The passage begins by saying that God's wrath is being poured out. On who? On the ungodly and the unrighteous who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's always how it goes. God created us in His image to know Him to reflect Him, to be like Him, to worship Him. Yet in our fallenness, we do just the opposite. Mankind denies God Himself. Even though, like verses 19 and 20 say, God has made His existence known to all people, both internally and externally through creation. Verse 21, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. The chief sin of man is the denial of God himself. God is knocked off his throne and replaced by man who wants to worship himself. And that always leads to ungodliness and unrighteousness. And that leads to God's wrath being poured out. And when you say that already describes our land, is ours a country filled with people who love God and obey him or who love themselves? Are most people in our land pursuing righteousness and godliness by God's grace, or are they pursuing the lust of their flesh? It's pretty obvious. It seems like we're ripe for God's wrath. And Romans 1 actually says, for people like us, it's already come. We're already under God's judgment. And you think, well, what, what do you mean? It doesn't seem like we're being judged. America is still prospering. Still, things are going pretty good. We don't, we're not being laid waste. So what do you mean we're already under God's judgment? We have to keep reading in Romans 1 to discover how God reveals his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Of course, in the next life, there will be a final judgment. But God's wrath is poured out even starting now. How? Well, verse 24. He says, therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. The key word here is therefore, in light of man's rebellion and denial of God and pursuit of unrighteousness, God lets them go. He hands them over to their own lusts, which is what they so desperately pursue, and they suffer the wages of their own sin. And that's actually the first step and signal of his judgment. There's nothing, nothing worse for a person or a nation than for God to withhold his restraining grace and to let them go. They're so desperately pursuing their sin, they're denying God. So it gets to a point where he says, okay. And he lets them go into their sin headlong, to their depravity. And they just suffer the effects of their own sin, both in this life and the next. And you can't tell me we're not already witnessing that. We are. With the rise of sexual morality in our country, 50 years, a sexual revolution from then till now, the family has fallen and degraded. And what has been the result? An explosion of social ills, including suicide, homelessness, behavior disorders, dropouts, drug addiction, alcohol abuse, sexual abuse, crime, incarceration, and poverty. Those things have always been around, but the rates for these absolutely explode for people who come from broken families. When the family disintegrates, society disintegrates and suffers. We're already witnessing that. It's just the beginning, though. What comes next? Verse 26. 
Again, in reflection of people casting God away, verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The next step is homosexuality. That is the next step down the slippery slope of immorality. And it's also the next signal, the next sign that God has let a people go. He is already judging them by letting them fall headlong into this sin. God has been rejected. People are living for self. So in judgment, God lets them have it. And they will experience, even in their own bodies, the penalty of their sin in this life and in the next with homosexual marriage, it's just the next step in the degradation of the family structure. And society will continue to erode. As the family erodes, society will erode and, and suffer. That is God's temporary judgment in this life. Finally, verse 28 says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. So the third mention of that phrase, God gave them over, it signals the last step of his judgment in this side of of eternity. Here the floodgates are open and he just releases a society to total depravity, which is already in their hearts, but by his grace he keeps it in check. But when a society rejects him and a person rejects him for so long, he might let them go and just what's in their heart just comes out. It just comes out. Nothing's keeping it in check. And I think we're right on the cusp of that, aren't we? Look at our culture, our media, our leaders, every facet of our society, and it seems like a depraved mind is is already here. The bottom line is this. We're already living in a society that is redefining good and evil, right and wrong. That's not a good sign. That's quite a wrath-invoking thing to do, to redefine good and evil. Let me give you a, a contemporary snapshot. Just this past week, Famous NFL quarterback, Russell Wilson, Seahawks, announced that he and his fiancée would be celibate. They'd be practicing celibacy until their marriage because of their commitment to Christ, which is a great thing. Of course, how did our culture respond to that? They ridiculed them, slandered them, mocked them, taking something good and now has labeled it as evil. Meanwhile, Chris Jenner transitions into a woman, now named Caitlyn Jenner. And how does our culture respond? Our culture celebrates it. He slash she wins awards and is championed. It's not a good sign. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Verse 16 says, But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. God will not be mocked. His righteousness will prevail in the end. And we, we mourn over this. We're, we are saddened over this. But we can't, in many regards, stop this. This is God's judgment already being poured out on our land. Sadly, we must realize that the changes we see in our society are but signs of God's judgment on our nation. And we're going to get to how to respond, but lastly, number six, six reflections on the legalization of gay marriage. Number six, this decision is not the end of the world, but it is required for the end of the world. Number six, this decision is not the end of the world, but it is required for the end of the world. I'll be brief with this one because pretty soon in our journey through Mark's gospel, we'll be coming in Mark chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks a lot about the end. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the end. But in short, no, this isn't the end of the world, legalization of gay marriage. It's not as bad as it can be. But you have to realize, in principle, the world must grow darker before the end comes. In short, Scripture paints a very pessimistic view of the end, of the future. Namely, that the world will grow a lot more darker and godless before the end comes. 
2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 4. He says, Realize this, that in last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. He continues on, verse 4. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that's, that's already been going on, but Christ tells us that all that wickedness will explode in the last times. Christian persecution will ramp up. The faithful will be hated by all nations on account of Christ's name. As a result, many will fall away. Unsurprisingly, the phony Christians will finally leave the church. There will be a great apostasy. And because lawlessness is increased, many people's love will grow cold. And the bottom line is, it has to get a lot worse before it gets any better, before Christ returns. And we don't make any predictions. He could return at any moment. We don't know the day or the hour. We don't claim to. But I can say, I think you can too, we are headed in the wrong direction. It's a one-way train, and things certainly seem like they're picking up speed from our perspective. But who knows? We can't control the future, but we do know what's coming. The question we need to worry about next is, well, how do we respond? Especially right now, we can't worry about the future. What do we do now? We spent some time this morning already reflecting biblically on the issues we face today with this recent shift in our culture. But now what? How should the faithful respond to such a, what some would call a landmark change? Well, let's shift gears here and let me also suggest to you six biblical responses to the legalization of gay marriage. Six biblical responses to the legalization of gay marriage. We'll be quick with these as well. Number one, take seriously the gospel. Take seriously the gospel. We established earlier that the real problem our society faces is a Romans 1 problem, meaning people have denied God and they've been given over to a depraved mind. So if you have a Romans 1 problem, you probably need a Romans 1 solution, which is what? Which is the gospel. Right before talking about all that, he started with his, his thesis for the whole book, Romans 1, 1.16, where Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, the Jew first, also the Greek. The problem is not behavior. That's just a symptom. The problem of the lost is in their hearts. After the fall, all people are born with fallen, wicked, sinful, depraved hearts, already given over in rebellion against God, including us. We were once just like that. We're no different. The solution is not, though, behavior modification. The solution is transformation. People need to be made new from the inside out. They need new hearts, new desires, a love for God. And that is precisely the hope of the gospel. That's what the gospel provides, transformation. Furthermore, the wages of sin is death, like he says in chapter 3. Or in chapter 1, like he said, the wrath of God is poured out against all unrighteousness. But the promise of the gospel is salvation from that wrath. That's what you are saved from, the penalty of sin. And so both positively and negatively, the gospel is the answer to all of our society's problems. And all this centers on Jesus. God is holy and just and righteous. We are not. We are sinners all in rebellion against him. But God is also love, and in love he sent his own son, Christ Jesus, to die on the cross on our behalf, to pay the penalty for our sins, to bear the wrath of God for us. That's what he did for us. And three days later he rose from the grave so that he could give a message of good news. That now if you turn from your sins and turn towards Christ by faith, confessing him as your Lord, your Savior, you follow him, you can be saved from the wrath to come. You can be transformed and made new. You can receive the hope of a new life. And that's the real hope for every sinner, including us. You know, we're no better than those in the world. We're, we're no different, except that we've received God's grace. We've been transformed by the gospel. We, we did not start off better or different. We have simply received God's grace through faith in Christ. That same grace can transform anyone. 
That's the world's hope, the only hope for those in the world. So you need to take seriously the gospel. Even those struggling with sexual sins can be redeemed, transformed, set free, any sin for that matter, through the gospel. Do you recall 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11? through 11, Where he said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. A bleak picture for those living in sin. But, verse verse 11, he says, Such were some of you. Such were some of you, but what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That's the transformation the gospel can bring, leading to eternal life. So if that's what the gospel can do, if the gospel is the power of God, then response number two is pretty obvious. Number one, take seriously the gospel. Number two, take seriously evangelism. Take seriously evangelism. Is there a place for Christians to get politically involved, to work for change from within, to be activists? Yes, I actually believe Christians right now need to stand together and make their voice heard through their vote and through their wallet. But that can't be our ultimate hope because that's not the ultimate solution. Even if the government changes, the government still can't save people. New birth is the only hope, the only answer, and that's why fundamentally evangelism is the only practical solution. Just look at Old Testament Israel. Israel had the perfect law, the law of God, and they had the perfect government ordained by God himself. Yet over time, Israel still sank and became just as wicked and depraved as the nations around them. How did that happen? They had the perfect government. Well, yeah, they had the perfect law, perfect government, but that can't save people. That can't transform people. Yeah, you can try and constrain people's behavior through the law, but that doesn't change their heart. That is something the government can never do. Only God's gospel has that power. So what do you need to do? Well, preach the word. Share the gospel. Don't fall into the temptation to replace the gospel with politics in an hour like this. You need to just share the truth. Let your light shine. Remember, our real enemies are not of this world. They never have been. Why are things as bad as they are? Ultimately, because of 2 Corinthians 4.4. Do you know that verse? It's talking about Satan. And it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan the deceiver has not, he's never stopped his work of toppling God's creation and he will not stop until Christ returns. But God still can lift the veil over people's eyes by his grace, through the gospel. So you need to take seriously evangelism. Renew your efforts to to be a light, to share the gospel. For too long, too many Christians in this country have been too scared to share the gospel, so they don't. And now they wonder, why is the nation turning against Christians and God's word and God's will? Well, what do you expect? At least for now, see the writing on the wall and do your part. What's your part? Well, for one, it's evangelism. Take seriously Evangelism. Number three, third response, take seriously love. Take seriously love. The rallying cry for the gay marriage movement lately has been love wins. After all, I mean, who are you to oppose love? They're just just trying to love one another. But that's not true love. That's not true love. For example, I know it's an extreme example, but what if a pedophile wanted to judge or justify his behavior and he said, hey, love wins. Am I I not free to love who I want to love too? You would say, no, you're not. That's wrong. That's not true love. So who draws that line? Who determines? Well, God does. God sets the lines of morality and there's no love on the other side of his lines. 
There's no real love when you're disobeying God. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's how you show God love, by obeying him. If you're living in disobedience, that's, that's not love, ever. That's just sin. And we cannot approve of that. that. That's not love. In fact, we are expressly forbidden from loving sin. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone does love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, well, what is it? What's in the world that we are not to love? For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the heart, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We cannot sugarcoat the truth or celebrate sin. For us to approve of the sin of homosexuality would be for us to not love God. And for us to approve of the sin of homosexuality would be for us to not love our neighbor. Granted, they may come to hate us for this. Surely they will They will hate us for this, but we, we can't hate them. We can't hate them. We're called to love them, to even show them true love, even our enemies. Like Christ said, love your enemies. This includes showing homosexuals real love, kindness, consideration, generosity. If they're in need, we can help them. But this also prevents us from overlooking their sin. We can't do that. We can show them tangible human love, but we, cannot, we can't overlook their sin. That would actually be a form of hatred. If you know someone lost in sin, whatever the sin is, and you refuse to, in love, warn them of God's judgment, and in love, share them the hope of salvation in Christ, you're in effect hating them. It's like seeing someone lost at sea and refusing to throw them a life preserver because you're scared of how they might respond. And we, granted, we can't control whether or not they grab onto the life preserver, but if you really believe what you believe, and if you really love them, then you've got to speak the truth in love. We, we can't stop doing that. We have to take seriously love. We must never lose our compassion for the lost as well. This is not a call for hatred or bigotry. We don't need that. We, we can show real biblical love, and we must not lose our compassion for the lost. Remember, we were once no different. No different. And even now, we're only different for one reason, and that is God's grace. He chose to show us grace. We've received it. And that must compel us to take seriously true love, which speaks the truth of God and offers real hope no matter the cost. Even if they hate us, which they probably will, we have to love them enough to still offer them the hope of eternal life through the gospel, no matter what. Take seriously true love. A couple more here. Number four, take seriously the rainbow. Take seriously the rainbow. As you know, the symbol of the homosexual movement has been a rainbow for quite some time, even to the degree that the White House itself was lit up in rainbow colors on the evening of this decision to legalize gay marriage. But it's sadly quite ironic because God intended the rainbow to be a symbol of another sort. Once upon a time, God judged the entire world through a flood. He killed everyone for their wickedness and gross immorality. Only Noah and his family were saved through the ark. However, God, God knew that was no long-term solution because sin was still a heart problem for Noah and his family. So God made a, a covenant, a promise to never again wipe out the earth and judge everyone through water. And he gave a sign as a sign, a symbol for that covenant of peace, the rainbow. And that's all recorded in Genesis chapter 6. And the intent behind that is now, as we see the rainbow emerge after a great storm, that we remember the greatest storm of all, the flood. And we remember the reason for the greatest storm, man's unchecked immorality. And we remember the only hope amidst the greatest storm, the ark, which was entered by faith. And the rainbow is meant to evoke such thoughts. And today that should have a purifying effect. Granted, we know God has promised to never again destroy the earth by water, but he never said anything about fire. In fact, he has promised to judge by fire. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved 
for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. There's going to be another judgment on the same scale as the flood, even greater, that none will escape. And so now the whole purpose is that when you see the rainbow, you are meant to repent lest you be swept up in that future judgment. It should cause you to be, to be pure, to seek God, to seek mercy, to seek the only hope, which is his ark, which today is Christ. You enter him by faith and you are saved from the wrath to come. So take seriously the message of the rainbow. Now, of course, the world, they mock us for this. And they've repurposed the rainbow to be the symbol of the same type of depravity that invited the first judgment. And that's just the, this massive irony there that I don't, I don't even think they realize that. But that, in turn, that should only produce in us a godly grief. That's nothing for us to, to laugh about, but it should just produce in us a godly grief. Like Paul expressed in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He said, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And listen to this, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And that describes so many people in our country. They glory in their shame. Well, we, we don't celebrate that. We don't celebrate their coming judgment. We, we have to mourn over it. Like Jeremiah in Lamentations, we, we lament the coming judgment of our own people who've gone astray and forsaken God. Don't lose your compassion for the lost. Urge them to turn back, even if they hate you for it. Urge them to enter the ark. You might feel powerless. I'm sure Noah felt quite powerless in his day. And we are powerless to do anything. But God is not powerless. And so that leads to response number five. Take seriously prayer. Take seriously prayer. We'll be brief with this one, but just want to include this. It's time for the church to finally take seriously the command in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-2, through 2, which says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's been our command for a long time, but I think the church in America has largely ignored that call because we've had it easy. We've, we've had it comfortable. We've had a quiet, easy life without persecution, but... Now's the time for the church to not ignore that command. It's time to pray seriously for all those in authority, for their salvation, but even just that we might be able to lead lives of godliness and and dignity. To take seriously prayer, prayer for our loved ones, the lost, our culture, our society, our leaders. As a side note, we've been studying evangelism on Sunday nights. We just finished tonight. We're having a prayer meeting with this in mind. And a lot of you, I'm sure, maybe have once upon a time thought, oh, prayer meeting, I can skip. I can skip Sunday night. But if not now, when will you take seriously the call to pray? We have to be doing that individually and as a church. Lastly, take seriously hope. Finish with this, number six, take seriously hope. At the end of the day, we have to remember this world is not our home. Say this last week, but we, we don't belong here. We're exiles, we're strangers on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait a Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord, who will finish our redemption. He will return. He'll bring us to himself. He will establish his kingdom. And there we will dwell. First John two seventeen says, The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And that's our hope. Yes, this world mocks us for this hope, but you need to hold fast to your hope. As a storm gathers around you, cling all the more securely to, to the ark, to Christ. Yes, June 26 marked a dark Friday in our land from the church's perspective, but it's not the first dark Friday God's people have endured. Jesus himself was crucified on a Friday. It was a very dark Friday. 
And at that, in that moment, all of God's people momentarily thought that sin had won, that Jesus was defeated, that wickedness had prevailed. But not long after that dark Friday came Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Jesus rose victoriously from the grave, conquering sin and death. And now he lives and he reigns. He is our hope. He's the only hope. So hope in him. Take seriously that hope. Don't lose sight of him. He will return. He will reign. He will judge. He will save. So hope in him. For Romans 10:11 says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we confess that you and your son Christ are our hope, our only hope. What is there in this world? History has already proven government can't save. We know this very well. Even your scripture testifies. Humans, we are the problem. Our sin, depravity come within. We're born, fallen, depraved, rebels against you. And when we get together, it's usually just for the sake of greater sin. The ship is going is going down. The writing's on the wall. You tell us how the world will get much worse before the end comes, and what can we do? Our heart goes out. We have compassion for the lost. We're not going to just give up or sit staring at the clouds. You call us to pray. You call us to evangelize, take seriously the gospel, and that we will do. We commit, Lord, by your, your power to pray for our nation, our leaders, our country, our loved ones, and to share the gospel. We do that even now, asking that, you would exert your power in our president, justices, the congressmen, to cause them to repent, to, to seek your will, to do what is right. We also pray that you preserve the church and give us boldness through this. We know you will. But Lord, you're still our hope. Our hope is, is not for this world. It can't be. Our hope is with you and with Christ who is hid on high, who will return for us. We long for him. We pray that he comes and comes quickly to set all things right. This world is fast about the business of of redefining right and wrong and overturning good and evil. And we just look to you, Christ, to come and to set that straight, to usher in your kingdom, that there we may be with you. That is, that is our hope. Keep us steadfast in that hope, and Lord, give us boldness for the approaching hours that we would say and do the right thing. May we stand for the truth, whatever comes. And granted, it's not the end yet. There's still a long way to go, but uh, may we be bold in speaking the truth in love, we do love the lost, even our enemies. We must do that. But help us to show a true Christ-like biblical love which doesn't forsake the truth when helping people as our desire. We thank you for what we've learned this morning. May it encourage us and inform us to the weeks and months to come. And pray for this land. And you may be glorified one way or another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.